Dump the mask. No mask. Thank you, sir. Pick that thing up your face. Shut up. Tell me to shut up in front of all these people. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're supposed to be spiritual. My name's Rick, and I am an alcoholic. Some people call me flat top. If your mother, sister, aunt, or uncle thinks you drink too much, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're here today and you're not exactly thrilled you're here today, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you think drugs are your problem, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you've ever sat in front of a judge and you were given a choice between going to AA or jail, and you too chose jail, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. These, these are all true in my life, because when alcohol works for me, I don't care. The fact is, you've always cared more about my drinking than I ever did. What I cared about is that you would shut up about my drinking. And I am somebody that drank himself under a bridge, so if that's your solution and it comes true, you think the problem would be solved, but it didn't. It didn't solve the problem. I was just drunk under the bridge. I didn't realize that alcohol had quit working for me years before I was under that bridge. I really didn't know why I was under the bridge. But I had this plan this day. I was waiting for it to get dark and I was going to step in front of the first semi that ran over that freeway. And I was 39 years old and I was going to call that my life. I thought you were done with me and I thought I was done with you. And if that would have happened, you'd have a different speaker here tonight. But obviously that didn't happen. So I grew up in a little town in Washington called Des Moines. It's not so little much anymore, and it's not much of a town. But when I was a kid, it was an ideal bedroom community. I was raised by a mom who raised three kids on her own at a time where it wasn't real fashionable. It's kind of standard now. But then she paid a heavy price for that. And I wanted for nothing, had nothing to do with my alcoholism. I was restless, irritable, and discontent from the very beginning, I know, because my mom said I had a, she had a difficult pregnancy with me. And I was really young when I was born, you know, and uh, <laughs> it seemed like everybody had the manual for life, and I didn't. And then kindergarten came, and all I ever really wanted to do was sit in the sandbox, not throw sand at other people, and not have people throw sand at me. I guess that's what I want in my life today. But I just... I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I was loved in that family. And my mom is the most kindest, loving person that ever walked the face of this earth. But I just didn't feel like I, I belonged in there. You know, and I grew up without a dad and I didn't know why, you know. But my mom tried to be the best two parent that anybody could ever ask for. She, me signed up for everything, boys club, this club, that club, you know. She had male influences in my life. And back then, they would come and get you. You know, these guys owned businesses, and they had martini shakers in their glove boxes, and, you know, they drank a lot. I don't know if any of them were alcoholic or not, but they all drank. But everybody drank back then in the 60s, and they drove. And they would put you on your lap, and you could steer, and they'd work the pedals, and they were drinking, and you wanted to. You know, you go to prison for that today, but that's how I grew up, you know. And those people, those guys, they took me hunting, they took me fishing. They tried to make sure that I had a male influence in my life, you know. Like I said, I wanted for nothing. I had really, uh, 
award cleaver upbringing. You have to be a little bit old to reference that, but <laughs> I did. It was, it was ideal. I had loving grandparents, you know, but I, I just didn't feel like I fit in that family. And I didn't know where my dad was. And one time I heard my mom say that my dad was an alcoholic. She was talking to some other people, and I was like, wow, I didn't know what that was. And a little short period after that, we were driving in downtown Seattle, and I heard my grandfather talk to my mom, and she said, hey, look, there's an alcoholic in the dumpster over there. And I looked to see if it was my dad. And I wouldn't have known if that was my dad or not. But that's what I'd associate with the word alcoholic for a long time after that. Some dumpster diving, you know, long trench coat type guy, scraggly haired, hadn't showered in a long time. I'd become that, but I wasn't there yet, you know? But I didn't know. I didn't know what it meant to be an alcoholic and I wouldn't for 27 years. I drank for 27 years. I would tell people I was an alcoholic, but I never knew what I was confessing to, you know? So, eight years old, I'd done something around the house that I don't really remember what it was, and my mom turned and spun and said, you know, you're going to grow up and be just like your dad. And I was like, wow, that's kind of harsh, Mom. I haven't even had a drink, and you're calling me an alcoholic, you know? And I, to this day, and I never asked my mom about it after that, but she saw some behavior in me that really kind of ignited some flames in her, you know? And uh, so I made a deal with my mom. I asked her if she could please not ever talk bad about my dad because one day I'd get to meet him and I want to be able to form my own opinion. And to the best of her ability, my mom never brought my dad up again around me. I heard her and sometimes talking to other people. You know, my mom had one side of the story and I'd later meet my dad and he had another side of the story and I never asked him which one was the truth. You know, they both believed the way they believed. I can't tell you about the first of a lot of things, but I can tell you this, my first drink. And I probably had drank in before this day, but this is the first conscious drink. We used to go camping, and back then you could go camping, you could stay out as long as you want to. The parents would go to bed, they didn't care if you didn't go to bed. They just cared that you didn't fall in the campfire. And you could stay up all night as long as you kinda, you, you didn't even have to really stay in the campground, because back there times were different. You know, you could go for a walk at night and you would come back, nobody would take you, you know, and, uh, and it was a beautiful way to grow up. So everybody had went to bed this one particular night and I was the man of the campground. And what I'd seen these guys do is they would go to the ice chest, they would grab a beer, they would open that beer and they would drink it, seemingly in one or two drinks, and then they would go grab another one. So I, this particular night, everybody's asleep, I'm the man of the campground. I went to the ice chest, I grabbed a beer, I went back to my fire, I opened that up. No, I didn't drink it in one or two drinks. I couldn't tell you how many damn drinks, but this is what happened. I drank all that beer and after that I went and grabbed another one. And I would drink that way the rest of my life. I never had one of anything. I don't even understand that. My mom's a special kind of sick. She'll drink a half a glass of wine and put it back in the fridge. Day one, it bothers you a little bit when you're nine. Day two, it's really kind of bothering your mom. It could spill in there. You might want to finish that. You know, day three, four, five, it's still in the fridge. My mom ain't like us. 
you know. My mom doesn't drink like I do. And I didn't understand that. I just thought, like, finish it, you know, and at an early age, you know. By the time I was 12, I was a daily drinker. And that's kind of a lie, because at 12, you're kind of like, I'm a daily what-the-hell-do-you-got guy. I'm rifling through medicine cabinets. I'm stealing alcohol wherever I could get it, and I'm drinking. And I drink like most people breathe air. I just drink all the time. I don't drink more on the weekends and less during the week. I don't wait for the kegger to get storm drunk. I just drink. I wake up and I drink and I go to bed, pass out, whatever. You know, and I liked it. And I never once ever remember people saying, like, you smell like alcohol. I don't know why they didn't know that. Later, my mom would hear one of my tapes and she would say, you said in there that you were a daily drinker since 12. Why didn't I know that? And I said, damned if I know, Mom. I didn't try to hide it, you know. I'd go and get a Coke, and I'd pour booze into it, and I'd drop around with my 7-Eleven cup, and I was, it was good, you know. And that's how I was. I was a short little dumpy kid when I was going to school, and I was tortured. They have all sorts of names and stuff for that. I was kind of slow learner in school, you know. ADD, OCD, BFD, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> the bottom line is, is that I had trouble learning out of a book, but I could, if you showed me something, I picked it up right away, and I was good at learning that way. And I was a good listener, so, and, and I always had people try to help me learn, so I, I'm not dumb. I just, I just don't learn, like, through a book very well. And... Uh, but in school, school was terrifying for me because I was a short little fat kid that they'd stiffen lockers, you know, and the janitor would let me out at four, you know, and I couldn't defend for myself. And after a while, I quit even trying. And I'd just go to school and get the crap beat out of me every day. And I didn't know how to tell my mom about what was going on with me. You know, she had enough problems. You know, my mom got remarried, my stepdad died, and she had other serious problems in life, you know. And uh, so I, I, I never wanted to really bother her with, and I didn't really know that it was, uh, because back then you just got picked on until you decided you weren't going to take the crap anymore, and you either defended yourself or you just got beat up for a long time, you know, and what happened to me is that I used to hang out at this lake, and uh, well, I met this girl, or I should say this girl met me, and her dad was a biker, so from across the the parking lot I'd hear this hi Rick and I'd be like oh no not her again because her dad's a biker and he don't want me to have anything to do with her but she was relentless she would just never quit trying to say hello to me and no matter what I told those guys they never believed me that I wasn't gonna mess around with Tiny's daughter you know and uh, so they had great sporting events like lasso the new kid and drag him around behind their bikes and throw me out in the middle of the lake and pick me up and throw me in a truck and take me to their to their houses and let me carry engine blocks around for no apparent reason and uh but they gave me a sense of belonging they they taught me how to stick up for myself they told me unequivocally about their lives and they told me not to go down the path they were on and they made me learn how to defend for myself and it really was in a weird way, a great male influence in my life at the time. And I got bigger and stronger, and I went back to junior high, and I settled the score. And they asked me not to come back, but they told me if I could behave myself, I could come back to school. And I didn't tell my mom about any of that. 
I just went and took care, you know, I just basically I showed up in the eighth grade and smacked kids' heads in the lockers and stuff. That's really not how to take care of your problems, but I thought they had it coming, you know, and I felt good about that, actually, you know, and I, and that wasn't on my resentment list at all, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it might be on theirs, you know, but it wasn't on mine, and that's just the way it is, you know, and I, st you know, when I was about, oh, I guess I was about 15 years old. I, I came home. I had this phone number for this little hottie that I'd met on the, you know. Back then, you could get on the telephone, you know, the one at home, and you could dial this hotline. It would go beep, beep, and you could talk in between the beeps, and you could get girls' phone numbers, right? And, and you could be anybody you wanted to be, right? Because they're on the phone. Who cares, right? So I got this girl's number, and she lived in North Seattle, and I could grab the bus from my house in South Seattle, and go all the way to the north side of Seattle. My mom didn't ever know I was doing that. I started riding that bus to downtown Seattle when I was 12 years old. I'd go out and drink all night down there and watch the hookers and stuff. I thought it was great. It was like the best movie you could get for free. You know, I didn't know you could die doing that stuff. I just thought it was kind of fun, you know. And uh, so I ran home this day. I had this number. And my mom goes, hey, Rick, can you slow down a minute? I want to introduce you to somebody. I said, yeah, Mom, but I'm really in a hurry. I need to crash the bus. You know, I didn't tell her why, but, you know, and she goes, so I'd like to introduce you. This is your dad. And I was like, wow, the guy I waited to meet my whole entire life is here in my living room. And my only thought was that he's kind of short, you know. <laughs> and I graduated high school at five foot six, so if I think you're kind of short, you're short, you know. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, it's my dad, but I got to go. You know, I got important stuff to do. I have this number in my pocket, and the bus is about to get there. And I can remember running and catching that bus, and I sat down, and that's the exact thought I had. You waited your whole life to meet this guy, and you wouldn't even slow down enough. And that's about as long as that thought lasted, because he was there because my older sister was in trouble on some sort. I think she wanted my, our dad to buy her a car or something, because she's a couple of years older than me. I'm not really sure what the, that relationship was. But I, I just remember, like, man, that's what you waited your whole life for. And, and it lasted about that long, you know. And then I went and met that girl, and it, it was okay, you know. And, you know, I also started working at the restaurant business about the same time. I had an affinity for the restaurant business. Those people believed in two things. They believed in playing hard and working harder. And if you could do both, you could keep your job. And I didn't know that. And I didn't drink like they did. But after work, they would take me to the bar. And then they would get better jobs, and they would take me with them there, too. And when they took me to the bar, they would say things like, hey, Rick, you got to sit here in the corner and not move around a lot. And you could drink. And I was like, I don't care about moving around or dancing or anything else. I can sit there and drink. That's great. You know, and... I really, I really was good in that career. I learned stuff very, very quick, and the guys that I was working with, they didn't want a lot of responsibility, and I didn't know that I took on their jobs too because I was drunk most of the time, and they allowed it, <laughs> you know, and, and we hung out, you know, and I, and I kind of lost contact with the people I was going to school with. Uh, I guess I better back up a little bit. Uh, after I started working in the restaurant business, I, I came home one day, I was 15 years old, and my mom goes, you know, if you, 
if you don't like the rules here, you can move out. And I asked my mom if I could keep my dresser. And uh, I don't know what affinity I had with my dresser back then, but apparently I didn't know how to say, you're right, mom, that I was too disrespectful to a single mom that was raising three kids to live by her rules. So I just said, you're right. Then she let me have my dresser and I moved in with some people that helped my older sister out and then I got my own apartment. And I don't know why they rented me an apartment because I was I was only like 16 years old or so, maybe a little bit older. And back then you just gave them money and they called and see if you had your job and if that checked out, you were in, you know, as long as you could pay rent and I could do that. And uh, about the same time I kind of uh, met this cocktail waitress I don't really know what that relationship was all about. I don't remember falling in love with her and I don't remember falling out of love with her. I'm sure they had laws back then too, but she didn't care and neither did I. And uh, it, was a good, it was good for me because they would take me to the bar and I would hang out with these people that were like five, six years older than me. And I thought I had arrived. You know, I got better and better jobs in the restaurant business and things seemed to, I've always had an affinity for meeting the right wrong people, no matter where I live. So I used to say I had part-time jobs. I used to say I was a gardener. I used to say I was uh, like a pharmacist. I used to say that I was a truck driver. And what I was really doing, I was growing weed, cooking chemicals, and boosting trucks out of the airport at 15 years old for these little short Italian people that would give me an envelope that had a lot of money in it and uh, I liked my my part-time employers and they liked me and I definitely knew who I worked for and uh, if they would have known how out of control I was I wouldn't be here today either you know but I went probably about as far in that society as somebody born in this country can go you know and they loved me like I was their son you know and I I knew the things that we were doing were not legal. I'm not dumb. And I'm also doing really well in this career and I'm starting to be on TV in Seattle carving ice and stuff because the chef that I worked for didn't want to go. You know and these guys over here didn't like me being on TV and these guys over here were like thanks for doing that maybe smoke a little less pot next time your eyes were pretty red on the camera. <laughs> and I was like oh you caught that huh you know and uh, but they never they, that's about all they ever said to me. And you can see how these two worlds just don't mix. They, they just don't, you know. And I'm drinking more and more, and I'm doing some other stuff. And I'll say this now. I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know our primary purpose here. But when Rick drinks, he does a lot of things that we don't talk about here in ANA. You know, I call them drugs, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you this, and it's something that I can never answer for myself. If I wasn't drunk one day when I was 13 years old and ran into this guy's garage and he was doing something and he turned to me and said, hey, would you like me to stick this in your arm? I don't know today if I wasn't drunk if I would have said yes, but I'd already been drinking that day and I didn't say no. And I can remember saying, if I live through this, I want to do it again. You know, because when Rick drinks, he does a lot of other things that he normally doesn't do if he's not drinking. And how do I know that's true? Because on October 17th of 1999, I didn't have a drink for 24 hours, and I haven't found it necessary to call the drug guy since. 
So when Rick drinks, it triggers something into him that it's all on, you know? And growing up, I always had a problem with that. I'd go out and drink, and then I would steal stuff out of people's medicine cabinets, and I'd, and I'd wake up on the football field, and I'd be like, wow, and it's morning. And I'd have to go home, and I'd be like, Mom, I'm really sorry. I, I fell asleep on Bobby's couch, and I know I should have called. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, so you shouldn't take a pink one, a blue one, and drink vodka. Maybe I should only have a half of a pink one and no blue one and just drink. I never thought about not doing that and drinking. It's like it just didn't calculate into me. Most people would do that once and say, I quit, not me, you know. So later in my 20s, I started waking up in the hospital. They called a drug and alcohol overdose. I called it a Friday night. We were having a little disagreement about what I was doing. And they would always ask me the same question first, why are you trying to kill yourself? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? Not once did I ever go out drinking with the intent that I wanted to wake up in a ha. I just overshot the mark. <laughs> but I didn't know that's what I was doing. I didn't know that I'm a blackout drinker. You tell me I did something between 1972 and 1999, my best answer is okay. Because <laughs> I don't have a defense for being a blackout drinker. To this day, some people can tell me something I did when I was younger. And sometimes I remember little glimpses of it, but not the whole story. You know, I miss date. In the state of Washington, if you wake up in the hospital more than three times in the year on a Friday night, they'll try to commit you. And they have the legal power to do that. But I also, if you're a guy like me, you'll learn the law. And I also learned that if you go on the run, they have to find you to serve you and they only have 30 days to find you. And once that 30 days expires, they have to wait and recertify you and then come after you again. But if you don't go back to the hospital, they got nothing to charge you with. Not once did I leave that hospital thinking maybe I should change my life. Not once did I think maybe my drinking was abnormal. Not once did I ever think that I could die doing what I was doing. Every time I left that hospital, I went and got a drink first. In my early 20s, I was trying to get myself together one morning to get myself to work, and I'd been up for a couple of days, and I did what I always did. I went to go take a shower, and I got in the shower, and I could remember the water hitting me, and everything went black, and I went through a plate glass window, and I hit the floor, and I don't know how long I was out, but I woke up on that floor, and my heart wasn't beating correctly. It was like beep. Beep, 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 and I knew that wasn't right, and, my, and I had like blurred vision, and I, I could breathe okay, but I, could, I can't really explain it. It was like there was just something wrong with me, and, and I knew that something was seriously wrong this time, so I drove myself to the emergency room, and I'm here to tell you that hospitals back then, they don't really like people that were doing what I was doing uh, that don't have insurance. 
they don't really like people that were doing what I was doing with insurance either, but they really don't like you if you don't have insurance. And they told me that even if I quit doing whatever I was doing, and they, they don't know what I was doing because there was too much stuff in my body for them to determine what was in me, that I was probably going to have a grand mal seizure and die within the week. And I was like, well, what's the other option? And there wasn't one. So I drove to that mom that raised three kids on her own. And I, and I went to her house and I knocked on her door at six o'clock in the morning and said, mom, I'm really in trouble. And I didn't know how to tell my mom, the mom that raised three kids on her own, that loved her son. I didn't know how to tell her, so I just showed her. And my mom just lost it and started yelling at me. And I, I turned around and I was leaving. I said, Mom, I could have went anywhere. And any of my friends would have talked to me just like you're talking to me now. But I'm here because I'm really in trouble and I don't know what to do. And my mom said, <laughs> this is a poetic thing in our family. My mom said, your aunt and uncle just came in last night, so please just go home. I'll, I'll, I'll help you, but I'll make a few phone calls, but you need to go home before your aunt and uncle wake up. Because <laughs> I was the black sheep of the family, and for God's sake, don't do this on my doorstep, you know. And uh, so I went home, and I didn't know if I was going to be okay or not. And my mom called the one guy she hated the most in her life, my dad, who is now a drug and alcohol counselor. And she asked my dad what she should do. And my dad arranged for me to go to a treatment center in a place called Virginia Mason Hospital. And within a short period of time, my mom came and got me. And the only reason they took me in this treatment center, there, mind you, back then there wasn't many treatment centers. And the only reason this one took me was because it was in a hospital. You know, so I got admitted. I was in this treatment center. I was the only one walking around with an IV bottle, so I was special right off the bat, you know. Um, they assigned me a counselor, and the first thing that she said to me is, I helped get your dad sober. And the rest of the time I was in that treatment center was like a Snoopy Linus movie, blah, 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 because I had huge resentments against my dad. And what I'd find out doing the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, none of them were my resentments, they were my mom's, you know. The reason I thought I didn't like my dad was all my mom's resentments. None of them were mine. And that's wrong, but that's the way it was. So I, it took 52 days to go through a 30-day program. I was pretty good at it, you know, and... Uh, I think they assumed that I wanted to quit drinking. I never told anybody I wanted to quit drinking. I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore the way I was doing it because I knew it was going to kill me. And uh, so I got out of that treatment center and I changed nothing. I didn't change friends, places, playgrounds, job, nothing. Three days after I left there, the mom that put $6,200 on a visa for money that she didn't have to save her son's life, I was drinking. And it went something like this. Tuesday was pool night. And I went to pool night with my friends because that's what I do on Tuesday night. 
and they said, hey, do you want a beer? And I said, yeah, I guess I could have one beer because for Christ's sake, I can't have too many because I just got out of treatment, you know? And I drank that beer. That's all I had, one beer. And I went home. Nobody asked me how my night was. Nobody knew that I was drinking. I certainly wasn't going to tell anybody I was drinking. And I had no consequences, and I thought I was okay. I thought I was separated from that other stuff, and I could just drink. Tuesday number two came around, and I decided that I should contribute, so I chipped in on the pitcher of beer, you know. And we drank that pitcher of beer, and still no consequences. And I stopped after that pitcher of beer. Week three, I don't like beer. I drink Bacardi and Coke, and that's what I ordered. And I wouldn't have a sober breath for 17 more years. And I thought I was okay drinking, not doing the other stuff, you know. So I was going to AA with my dad, who is now, he is a drug and alcohol counselor. What a career, right? And uh, we were bonding as, you know, father-son should. And uh, I was going to AA once a week with my dad, drinking, collecting coins. If you've never tried that experiment, it's really hard to go to AA while you're drinking, <laughs> you know? Because if you got to go to AA on Wednesday, you better not drink on Tuesday, and you better start tapering off on Monday so that you'll be okay with your dad on Wednesday. <laughs> and then pretty soon, you better really hit it hard on Saturday so you can slow down on Sunday so you can be somewhat okay on Monday and Tuesday so you can go to AA with your dad and collect another coin. And I would tell people, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I took a six-month coin, not drinking on Wednesday, sober. I could no longer look my dad in the eyes. I couldn't no longer look at those people in AA that were trying to help me. Nobody ever said a word to me, but I was dying inside. And pretty soon I have to work on Wednesdays. First it was just a Wednesday, and oh, they changed my schedule. Now it's every Wednesday. So now I'm no longer going to AA at all, drinking. I knew that I was starting to lose it, and I was going to go back to doing what I was, what I was always doing. And I, I knew my family was going to figure this out soon. And I didn't know what to do. And about the same time, coincidentally, I had a little misunderstanding with the legal community in the state of Washington. And they wanted me to talk, tell them about what my friends did, those little short Italian people. And I was subpoenaed to a federal grand jury three times in a year threatened with 40 years to life, and I pleaded the fifth, and I paid a lawyer a bunch of money, and I beat it on technicalities, and I can remember the last one that I beat, the judge looked at me, and he told me that he believed that I was nothing short of a liar, and unfortunately, the law was the way the law was, 
and there was nothing he could do, but if it was up to him, he'd make sure I went to prison for my natural life. And I would, I like hit my lawyer because I had just given him a whole lot of money. And I said, he can't talk to me that way. And my lawyer told me to shut up and just listen to whatever he has to say and call him sir. And I did. And then these people had the audacity to say they want me to leave the state of Washington. And I said, you can't tell me where I can live. And they said, well, this is what it's going to be like if you stay. And I said, wow. And I wasn't sure if I was in trouble with my part-time employers who were still going to trials or not. And I thought at the time that no matter what I did, which I did what they asked me to do, listen to this lawyer and do exactly what he told me to do and you could be fine. But I didn't believe him because nobody walks away from what we were doing. They go on vacation, you know, but they don't just get to leave. And, and they allowed me to leave because I did what, and, and I did what the state of Washington asked me to do. They told me to leave. They told me to leave for 10 years and not come back. And I didn't tell my family why I had to leave. I left in the middle of the night. And that dad had signed a loan for me and I left my car on the Washington-Oregon border and wrote a letter and put it in the mail to explain why my car was on the border and I wanted him to have it to pay off that loan he co-signed for me. But something happened for, with that letter. So for the better part of three and a half years, my family didn't know what happened to me. They found an abandoned car on the border and my mom thought foul play had happened and her son was dead. And my dad, I don't know how he ever, how he thought about any of it. We never talked about it. So I just went AWOL. And I ended up in Mendocino, California. And I went back to work in the restaurant business. And I, I was pretty much off the radar as much as I can be, but I got a job at this place called The Hill House. At the time, that's where they filmed Murder, She Wrote, and I got written up in a San Francisco paper of having the most traditional Thanksgiving dinner on the West Coast. And I had this piece of paper that said I was really good at what I did. I don't know how good I was at what I did, but I had a piece of paper that said I was extremely good at what I did. And if I ever wanted another job, I could take that piece of paper and put it out there and people would hire me from Mendocino, California, I went to Lake Tahoe, and from Lake Tahoe, I went to Sarasota, Florida. And from Sarasota, Florida, I went to the Grand Cayman Islands. From the Grand Cayman Islands, I went to Venezuela, then I went to Puerto Rico. I lived and worked in five-star resorts in some of the most beautiful places that most people only get to go on vacation maybe a couple times in their life. But it was always the same for me. We're really glad you're here. We can't wait until you leave. Because when I'm working and I'm off all that stuff, and, I'm, and I'm, I work tremendous hours because I was too scared to take a day off because I would start drinking. And I never knew what was going to happen to me when I was drinking. And I was working in five-star resorts and living neck in the ghetto to find what I needed to make myself right, you know. And people in my careers, they'd always say, Rick, you could go really, really far doing what you're doing. You have the talent if you could just get your outside life straightened out. They never said anything about my drinking, but I knew what they were talking about, you know? 
But what I didn't know that if you drink long enough and hard enough, you have stuff like diminished skill capacity, you know, that you won't be able to do what, you're, what you used to be able to do. Your bounce back won't be so bouncy. You'll have trouble doing simple things that you got away with for years. And eventually what happened to me is that I came back to the States. I thought by now my family, I've been gone almost 10 years. I, certainly they've been missing me by now. My mom had sold her house and moved in with my older sister, so I packed up everything I went and I drove from Florida to back to Washington and I showed up on my sister's doorstep. If you do that, call your sister first. <laughs> because she was none too happy when I showed up because I just assumed that they would be glad to see me and take me in and give me a room and somewhere to sleep. But that sister, that sister that I had huge resentments growing up against, you know. My mom used to say when I was younger, you know, why can't you be like your sister? And I would think things like boobs, you know, and I never told my mom that. I would just think that way, you know. And what I heard my mom say when I was younger is, why couldn't I have had another daughter? And my mom never said that to me. She was just like trying to say, why can't you be like your sister and get good grades and not be in trouble, you know? But what I heard is that if we had another daughter, our life would be better. You know, and that sister, she always took me in. And she goes, you know the rules. I go, I do. When you live here, you can't drink. You have to find a job. And as soon as you get yourself back on track, you need to move. And I said, okay. And I live by my sister's rules. To the best of my ability, I, I live by those rules when I stayed with my sister. And it didn't take me that long before I was back in Washington and I was hanging out with some of the old people that I used to hang out with and I was drinking more and more and I just couldn't let my family see that again. So I put that piece of paper out one more time and I ended up in a, a job, uh, um, Skamania Resort is what it's called, it's part of Salishan five-star resort in Hood River area and you know and it was good and then from there I uh, I had to I had to get out of that little community because I was starting to do more and more of that other stuff that I swore I wasn't going to do any more of you know and I was starting to want to drink more than I wanted to go to work so I came to Seaside Oregon and I, I applied at the Shiloh Inn and I told them I'd only come work for them if they had a chef's job in a short period of time, and they said they did. And then after a little bit of time, they had trouble with their chef, and they opened a new hotel in Klamath Falls, and they sent me there. And uh, I went there, and for the first three months I was there, they gave me all sorts of raises, and they couldn't believe what I could do. You know, until the general manager of the hotel had the audacity to ask the sous chef that worked for me. He didn't really work for me, he worked for Shiloh, but I thought he worked for me. And uh, <laughs> she asked him if he thought I had drug and alcohol problems. And he told me. And I told him he could tell her that if that wanted to know stuff like that, she should have asked me and you tell her I quit. And the real reason I quit was because the gig was up. 
she was exactly right. And I wanted to drink and drug more than I wanted to go to work. And I would leave Klamath Falls on a mountain bike, and I would ride that mountain bike from Klamath Falls to Crescent City. And I was going to go work in a restaurant one more time, because that's I always did the same damn thing, you know, because I was good at what I did. It didn't matter what town I went to, I could cook. You know, but it was like uh, Labor Day weekend or something, and the, I, got, I got hired, but they said I couldn't start till Monday because it was a busy weekend, and the carnival was there. So I went to work for the carnival. And I'm here to tell you I was good at that. <laughs> you give Rick some liquor and put me in a balloon store, and I call it a cash register, you know, and I went from town to town, and I stole all your money, and I'm not ashamed of that one bit. And it's really hard to drink your way off the carnival, but some of us have special talents. <laughs> and regardless of what you think about those people, they don't like that other stuff either because it's bad for the show. And those people would watch me be drunk all season long and they would take me home to their homes. And they would think that if we just kept him drinking, he would stay off the other stuff. But they didn't know that when Rick drinks, it triggers that other stuff. I didn't know. When Rick drinks, it triggers me to do that other stuff. You know, I just don't have a no once I'm drinking. You know, and I'd eventually run from there and I'd be homeless under a bridge. And that brings me back to where we started. One day under a bridge, sometime in September, I don't even know what day it was. I was waiting for it to get dark this one particular evening so I could walk on top of that bridge, stop, walk in front of a semi, and call it my life, and I was 39 years old. Coincidentally, my dad got sober when he was 39 years old. And when I met my dad when I was younger, he always told me, you don't have to wait until you're 39 years old to grow up like I did. And I remember that that night. And to me, some concrete pillars, some dirt, and a God not of my understanding, I told myself that the only reason I was there on this one particular evening wanting to kill myself was because of drugs and alcohol. And I'd never said that ever once in my life. I'd never came clean with me to my innermost self. See, I always used to think it was because I was raised in Washington and I belong on a tropical island. I used to think that maybe odd years aren't too good, so I'd wait for the even years to be better. I used to think I was picking wrong jobs, and that's why I was drinking more. I used to think that it was her, or it was her. Yeah, I guess it was her. And really, the only common denominator of all of it is that I was there. And it didn't matter where I lived and how nice those places were, I drank the way I drank. And I no longer had anybody else to blame. So I asked God for help. And I got about the best four hours of sleep of my night ever in my life. And I got up and I dusted myself off and I went from under my bridge to 7-Eleven. I bought two beers because I had to get right to hitchhike. And I stuck my thumb out. And from that day till now, I had an overwhelming feeling since I said that prayer that things were going to be okay in my life, and I can't explain that. I didn't get sober that day. I just knew that things were going to be okay in my life, 
and I didn't know where I was going. And I can't tell you how many days, I can't even tell you where in Central California that bridge is. I've looked for it and I can't quite find it, but I know the 7-Eleven is still there, you know, but I'll find it one day. And uh, my best guess is that it took me four to seven days to get from that bridge to Medford, Oregon. I didn't know I was going to Medford, Oregon. I can tell you my last homeless night was in a clump of bushes outside of Wairika, California. The state of California has been nice enough to put a chain link fence around those clump of bushes so nobody else can sleep there. I don't think that's why they did it, but I appreciate it. And uh, if you go down south with me and we're driving, I'll show you my clump of bushes because I never want to forget the last homeless night I ever had. I never want to forget that I woke up in that clump of bushes, I stuck my thumb out, and a union truck driver that told me he's not supposed to pick up hitchhikers, but he was felt compelled to pick me up that day and told me to get in his truck. I will never forget that guy that picked me up there and he got off the freeway in Medford, Oregon and we got to a stop sign and I got uncomfortable and I told him this is where I went out and he kind of looked at me a little bit weird like, here, you sure? Because when you're homeless, you kind of have to pretend like you know what you're doing, you know? And I said, yeah, this is perfect. And he goes, what are you going to do here? And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for work and I'm going to change my life. I'm going st- to start over here. He goes, are you really going to do that? And I said, yes. And he reached in his duffel bag and he gave me a pair of jeans and a shirt. And he goes, here, I want to give you these because if you wear this, you'll have a better chance of finding a job. And I told him, thank you. But that conversation really dumbfounded me because I didn't know why he did it. And I got out of that truck and I looked in the, the window of the store. And I saw myself for the first time and I hadn't seen in a long time. And I had on these lime green sweatpants that weren't too limey anymore. And I had on this red, white, and blue collared, I called it a polo shirt, it came from Kmart, you know, polo my ass. And uh, (laughs) you know, and I probably hadn't been doing laundry for about three months and there was stuff growing on me other than me. And the book talks about that. It says the alcoholic life will become the only life we know. And I didn't know until that day how far removed from society I had become under that bridge. And what I saw absolutely disgusted me. And I didn't know how I got from being an executive chef in the Cayman Islands to that in three and a half years. And the next person I asked, I asked if they had a mission. And they said, yes, they just built a brand new one. And I was a block and a half away and they showed me where that was. And they let me have a room there. And every day I would wake up and I'd walk to Labor Ready. And then eventually I got a 90 day ticket out of Labor Ready at a mill and back then if you got a 90-day ticket at a mill and you made that 90 days you were in for life you had a job for life it's much like it is up here if you get in with a mill and you pass your first 90 days and just show up every day to work you can work there for a whole career you know but as soon as I got my first paycheck I was too good for the mission and I went to like uh, rent by the week type of a room in the bar 
And when I went to that bar, I sat down and this one particular night, I was having this glass of beer and I was looking around and everybody in that bar was enjoying themselves and having a good time. And I just sat and looked at that glass and I told myself that no matter what I was looking for, wasn't in that glass anymore. I don't know where it went, but it wasn't coming back. And if you're an alcoholic of my variety, that's the saddest damn day of your life, knowing that alcohol will no longer do for you what it used to do. It will no longer blot out the seemingly intolerable difference in your life and make you okay to face your fears and the I don't care anymore. It actually doesn't do that anymore. It actually intensifies those feelings and you will know what the four horsemen are all about in the bewilderments. And that's where alcoholics end up. And they say that only the alcoholic knows the word lonely. Because if you've ever been in a bar and you felt like I did that night, like there was 100 people around me and I felt like I was the only person in that room dying of acute alcoholism. And I didn't know what that was. But I remember my dad telling me about AA. And I left the bar. And the next day I went to work and I twisted my ankle really bad and I lost that job. And I was full of fear. And I went to the payphone and I called AA hotline, Jackson County hotline. And I told him about the same story I just told you guys and I told him I was in trouble and I didn't know what to do. And if he would have asked me on that one particular day where alcoholism was in my life, it would be like 12 or 13 because I had problems. You know, I had real problems other than, you know, I didn't have a place to stay. I was worried about being homeless again, blah, 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 blah. You know, and then somewhere down there, and oh, by the way, I drink too much, you know. And, uh, and the lady goes, well, would you like to... Uh, talk to somebody and I was like no I just have problems and uh, they gave me this this guy they, they turned me over to this guy his name was Brian and Brian goes um, can I come get you and take you to lunch and I said man I'm not hungry I just got problems you know and he goes <laughs> would you like to go to a meeting at AA do you want to quit drinking and the words out of my mouth came out I think I must and he goes, well, I can come get you. And I said, no, just tell me where you want me to go. And they told me to go to the Alano Club because I told them I wanted to talk to a counselor. That's what brought me to AA. I was looking for a counselor, you know, a white robe counselor. And they sent me to the Alano Club. And I went in there and I told this old lady and I was looking for a counselor and she laughed at me. And this other, her and this young guy told me there's nothing here but a bunch of drunks. <laughs> and they gave me a meeting schedule of Alcoholics Anonymous and told me I was welcome here. And I said, well, why did they tell me there was a counselor here? And they said, I, honey, I don't really know. So I went back to the payphone because some of us are persistent. <laughs> and I called Jackson County AA hotline again. And I told the lady she must have not understood me. And I can just imagine today, I, I volunteered there for a long time. And I can just remember that lady must have been like, woohoo, we got a live one here. Hang on. <laughs> We're going to call everybody we know to come help you, buddy. You know. So they gave me a, they gave me directions to another meeting, 36 South Central, because I thought they had lied about the Alano Club. So I was walking down the street, and I didn't know Medford very well, and I saw this, count, this sign, 
Jackson County detox. And I well, this must be it. This is where they got to have a meeting here. And I went in there. I went in the back door, not the front door. And five minutes later, a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous started. And I can still tell you the first five people I met here. There was a lady named Little Crusty Annie, they called her, because she wasn't afraid to swear and talk about God in the same sentence. There's another guy named Biker Al, because he was a biker and his name was Al. <laughs> there was another lady that I loved dearly. Her name was Marilyn, who did a lot of work as a volunteer at the domiciliary, the VA domiciliary in White Center. And there was another guy that I absolutely loved. They called him One Cell Jeff because he put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger and a big like part of his head was not there. And those people welcomed me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they didn't say do 90 and 90. They said see you tomorrow. They didn't even say that. They said what are you doing tomorrow? And you know my social engagement calendar was pretty busy back then. I said I don't know. They said, good, we'll be here at 7 o'clock tomorrow. And I said, okay. And then the next day, there was another meeting of our other program that was there. And every day, I would just go to the mission, and I'd go back there. I'd, I'd later, I would find this club, 36 South Central, that Tim was talking about. And when I got there, I didn't want to have nothing to do with any of you. I sat in the corner. And you guys were all like, come sit with us. And I'd be like, I'm good, just stay over there, you know. And I would detox in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous this time. And I wouldn't know how to tell people I was hearing stuff and I didn't know if the voices I heard were real or not. I didn't know how to tell people that I saw stuff coming out of the walls that I didn't know it was there or not. But I heard those old people and they talked from the podium and they said to drink is to die, and I bought it because I was dying when I got here, you know. And I'd go to labor ready, and I'd finally get tickets to go back out again. And they would pass the basket, and it would come to me. This old guy would say, you're not going to put a dollar in there? And I'd say, I just got done telling you I only got three hours of workout today, and I only got $24. And he'd say, good, put a dollar in there and you'll have 23. <laughs> you know, these people knew answers to questions I didn't even know I had. They said, hey, after the meeting, we're going to coffee. You want to go? And I'd say, no. And they'd say, why? And I'd say, because I don't have any money. They said, did we ask you if you had any money? <laughs> no. And they drug me along. And they started taking me to speaker meetings. And they told me about this guy, Don. They told me this story that he loved that club enough that he died in it. And I was like, I told you I'd come back tomorrow. You don't have to tell me these stories. The first speaker tape I ever had was a guy named Don Pila, the guy they talked about in that club. You know? I never met him, but I heard his voice and the message that he carried on that tape. There's a guy named Otto who's like a gazillion years old and a gazillion years sober today. He still rides Harleys, 89 years old, you know. And he'd say things like, you keep coming back, you'll get this son of a bitch yet. And I told him I would. 
and later I, I started joining those people and I got tricked into doing service work. <laughs> Pretty soon in my sobriety I did and uh, two things happened this one particular night. We, we went and cleaned this guy's car and uh, did some stuff for him because he was dying of emphysema. And uh, we were supposed to go do that and not tell him that we were doing that. So we went and broke into this guy's car, and I thought this was great fun because we have special skills here. And so getting into a car and stuff is no big deal for us. So we broke into the car and cleaned the car and went and did a bunch of stuff and bought him cigarettes. And two things happened to me the next day. I heard this voice, and he said, hey, hey asshole, come sit down next to me. And Ralph Ward was his name. And he'd later explained to me he wasn't calling me an asshole but at 25 years of sobriety, he was embarrassed that we were helping him because he had helped thousands of people, but he hated the idea of somebody helping him. So if you've been around this deal, I'm telling you to allow us to help you, you know, because some of you guys get older and can't drive and you're too proud to ask for a ride to meetings, but we need you here. We need to hear what you have to say so that we can learn it to pass it on to other people. Ralph Ward thought enough about me to take me through the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought enough about me to do the work that's in those first 164 pages. And today I think enough about you that if you wanna know what I've learned, I'd be happy to sit down and show you. And it's as simple as that for me. Because I hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about this book that we don't see around as much in meetings. It's not on the tables. <laughs> Hell, I didn't even remember mine here tonight because I packed it in my suitcase and left it in the motel room, and I had to ask for a book because I like to use it as a prop, you know? <laughs> so some of you guys might not have ever known this book, and if you're new, I encourage you to find somebody to take you through this book. Because when I read this book by myself, it doesn't say what, it, what I think it says. And there's a sentence in here that says, and there is the manic depressant in which a whole chapter could be written. But the next chapter isn't to the manic depressant, and that's my out. Because all my life, my doctors have been telling me I'm manic depressant with schizophrenic tendencies. And I'm here to tell you, if you were doing what I was doing, you'd have schizophrenic tendencies too, <laughs> you know? And today, I'm not manically depressed at all. Sometimes I feel a little out of sorts. I might be a little bipolar, because sometimes I get going a little faster than the world, but I don't get depressed anymore. I was on 17 medications when I showed up here. I'm on both blood pressure, because I'm getting older and stuff, you know? <laughs> type 2 metformin and stuff like that, but I'm not on anything like psychotropics, but I'm telling you, if your doctor tells you that you're supposed to be on those, stay on them. I went to my doctor before I got off of them because I got tired of them switching my prescription every three months. And they said, we'll see how it goes. And that was 15 years ago. And I'm okay, you know. You guys told me you'd love me until I could love myself. I don't know if I love me today, but I've learned to love you. And that's not something I was bargaining for at all. I have found a love in my heart for people in sobriety beyond anything I could imagine. 
I always saw the hand of AA reach out for me. Well, I guess I should back up a little bit. The second thing that happened on that night that we helped Ralph is I got my first AA relationship. And I'm here to tell you, I heard what those blue-haired people were talking about, stay out of relationship for your first year. But I heard it from blue-haired people that don't have no business being in a relationship. You know? But what I didn't hear is the reason they suggest that is so that you can get a relationship with a power greater than yourself so if that relationship goes south, you won't have to drink. Or God forbid, if that relationship works out, you won't have to drink. <laughs> you know? That's why you're supposed to spend a time to get to know you and your creator, whatever you call that. I call God God because it's easy to spell. And I never tell anybody my conception of God because I want you to develop your own. Because if you borrow mine, it might work. But in this book, it says there'll come a time that no human power can stand between you and that first drink. And if you're borrowing somebody else's God, it might not be for you that morning if that power comes to take you. And today I have a loving God in my life. And he allows me to come here and meet fine people like you. And I come here, and I thank Tim for asking me to come here, you know. And Butch was my friend. And I miss Butch. And Butch got sick, but he didn't have to stay that way for very long before he passed. And Butch was my number one advocate. He told everybody hey, you got to get this Rick guy to go speak here. You get this Rick guy. So now in this last year, I spoke more in different places than I did because Butch introduced me to these people and they called and I come. I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and I love you. If you're new, if you collected a marble here, please stay. You know, we're all here because we're not all there. So you're not the only one rocking around with a marble in your hand, you know? We need you. I need you. Because Rick by himself could never get sober. Rick and God could never get sober. Found a lot of nice folks in churches, but I could never get sober. Rick, God, and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous hasn't had a drink or a drug since October 17th of 1999. And you don't know how hard it is And you don't know how hard it is to stand up here today knowing that they're giving out coins and I want that 22-year coin that I deserve tomorrow morning. <laughs> because my sponsors drilled it in me, no fronts, and I brought my friend Dean here to make sure that it, we stay even that way, <laughs> you know? I moved to Coos Bay and Dean's been giving me my coin, I don't know, five, six years now, you know? Because when I moved to Coos Bay, I didn't know anybody. Yesterday, I got a card from a trusted friend who died in June, who wrote his wife a card to wish me happy 22nd birthday and told her to mail it to me. He was dying of cancer, and he thought enough about me to do that. And I don't know where you find people like that other than here in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I don't know what your miracles are going to be if you stay here. I just know you'll have some. I know I could drink again. I don't know if Rick has another sobriety in him. I'm unwilling to find that out because those people where I got sober told me to drink was to die. If you think you're a tough guy, call us at 2 o'clock in the morning. We'll come and sit with you until that feeling passes. I don't know why people come to your house at 2 o'clock in the morning and want to feed you coffee because you already can't sleep. (laughs) But that's what we like to do. You know, and if you laughed a little bit here tonight, thank you. Because to me, that's the love of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thank you very much for having me. (laughs) 